Two weeks ago, we began a journey through the joy book of the Bible, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I think it is important to keep in mind the end game, that is, the result we are hoping to achieve through this time together. So here it is, the goal of this journey is to truly discover biblical joy in our lives. See, this isn't about head knowledge. (laughs) It's about discovering joy. And you know, sometimes you have to know what the target is before you can hit it. Well, that's the target. We want to discover biblical joy in our lives through the study of God's Word. There's a certain discipline required if we're to find joy in in this life. But according to the Bible, joy is findable. The joy of the Lord is actually discoverable for any follower of Christ because His joy is already inside you in the form of something called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you know Jesus, His joy is already in there. Though sometimes it's like a hidden treasure waiting to be uncovered. We spent a lot of time defining joy over the last two weeks, and I can't go back through all of that, but remember that joy is not as much an emotion as it is a perspective. Joy could be thought of as contented strength. And as I mentioned, sometimes joy seems a bit like inappropriate happiness. We're talking about an attribute that you can gain through spiritual maturity more than a feeling felt by getting what you want. And so joy does not come as easily as the happiness you might experience when you purchase a new car. The Bible tells us it was because of joy that Jesus was able to endure the cross, despising its shame. Joy is what can get you through this life in a Christ-like way. Joy may be the best treasure available to us during our sojourn on this earth. That's why we're looking for secrets to discovering it in the book of the Bible that constantly tells us about joy. Philippians. Paul was in a prison, as he wrote it, with chains on his wrists. As he put down these words to call his little church plant in Philippi to joy. The first secret we find in his letter is fellowship. We started discussing this secret to joy last week, but I had to cut that message short, so today we will continue discuss um, this secret of joy, fellowship. Let me read our text again, taken from Philippians, and from these words, I see the idea that fellowship can be a path to discovering the joy of the Lord in our lives. From chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 3. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. I always pray for you, and I make my requests with a heart full of joy. Because you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the first time you heard it until now, And I am sure that God, who began the good work within you, will continue His work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus comes back again. 
It is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a very special place in my heart. We have shared together defending the truth and telling others the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love for each other will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in your knowledge and understanding. And I, this is verse 12, skip you to verse 12. And I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that everything that's happened to me here has helped to spread the good news and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that as you pray for me and as the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will all turn out for my deliverance. Hopefully you can see that one of the keys to finding joy is that we must find it together. The joy of the Lord that Paul has found is not found in isolation. Solitude is extremely important for certain facets of spiritual growth. But when it comes to joy, the Bible points us to community. To be specific, our text in Philippians is going to show us that joy will be best developed in our lives through the fellowship with other Christians that happens when we fully participate in a local church. I believe Paul saw this Philippian church as his home church at this point, this time. I think that's clear in the way that he speaks to them throughout the book, even in the verses we just read. Though he sits in prison at Rome, he finds amazing joy in the fellowship he has with his church family. I attempted to define biblical fellowship last week, explaining that it isn't so much deviled eggs and uh, green bean casserole as it is doing life together, especially when life gets hard. Fellowship is functioning like a functional family. Fellowship is about doing great things for God together as a team. And it's about being there for each other and helping each other, and, and loving each other, and teaching each other, and more. Um, I pointed out uh, last week in our, in our sort of this graphic that just gives the big picture of our vision for, for Go Church, what we believe is God's vision for Go Church, and notice that we use the word sharing in the circle, which is sort of our, the circle is sort of our discipleship strategy, and the second sort of step there is sharing, and that that's the word we're using for this concept of biblical fellowship, koinonia in the Greek, what they experienced in the earliest, earliest church. And I explained several of the opportunities for sharing that we have already, but I also admitted <clears throat> that our greatest tool for developing fellowship, for sharing, is something that is yet to come. Hopefully next fall, we will launch share groups now, by the way, if, if a share group would start to form organically you know, without us you know, really trying to make it happen, I'm not going to stop that either. But the, the, the big you know, pouring into and trying to make it happen is going to probably be next fall. Share groups. It'll be small groups meeting in homes uh, throughout the community. And the primary purpose of, of those groups will actually be fellowship. Okay? Just, I'll explain that more down the road. But it will be the number one reason that we gather. And I... Don't make any apologies for that since fellowship is actually probably in the top three reasons the church exists. Sometimes we undersell this idea of fellowship, of doing life together, of sharing. This is what the church is about in many ways. I also explained that you really can't program fellowship. You know, people are like, we need to have this, we need to have this, we need to have. some things just have to develop naturally over time, we need to provide opportunities, significant time 
together is required for a real fellowship to develop. And so after that, uh, I began to explain <clears throat> three ways fellowship develops in the local church. And I only got through the first one, which I put like this. In the local church, joy is experienced through the fellowship of working partnerships. Working partnerships. I used an object lesson of what happens when you put boring old water and bitter coffee grounds together in a machine, which I used to represent the church, even though that is not what the word Keurig actually means in Dutch, as I jokingly asserted. I had you for five seconds. You were like, oh, really? was fun. But as the result of that experience, our friend Andy got to enjoy a good cup of joe, which in my mind is short for joy, because coffee brings me a lot of joy. The point was that joy is experienced through the fellowship of working partnerships. We found this in our text through statements like, I make my requests with a heart full of joy, why is my heart full of joy? Because you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ. And then at the end of verse seven, you have a very spe special place in my heart. We have shared together, defending the truth and telling others the good news. And then at the end of verse 18, and I will continue to rejoice, which is, again is to repeat the joy of God that's coming into your life. For I know that as you pray for me and as the spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will all turn out for my deliverance. So Paul rejoices because he's not alone. He knows that they have his back. His joy flows from his working partnership with the church at Philippi. As disciples of Jesus, we have been given a job to do work to do. But we're not called to do that job alone. We're called to do it in the context of a community of faith called the church. Paul enjoyed a working partnership with the church at Philippi. Clearly this partnership gave him great joy. And remember, this was a working partnership. It's very clear in the scripture that the joy came in what they were accomplishing together. That's in working hard toward the purposes of God as a group. Those of us who have worked hard and continue to work hard to bring this church into existence have absolutely discovered joy in that working partnership. But we have only just begun. You, yes, even you can be a part of it. You can get in on it from this point forward. There is no joy like that found in the fellowship of working together for the furtherance of the gospel and the kingdom of God. There's no joy like that on this earth. Get involved and discover real joy. That brings us up to the point where we left off last Sunday. So now the second way that Fellowship in, in God's family leads to joy is a little bit less intuitive. You might be surprised to know that joy is developed through the fellowship of common suffering. Everybody goes through suffering, right? Everybody has struggles. Talk about bending but not breaking when things are hard. Well, if this spaghetti, <laughs> which is like from Walmart, always save or something, so we're, we're not wasting anything that's probably edible anyway. Um, if this spaghetti represents, I probably just offended someone, 
if this spaghetti represents uh, you know, your life and pressure comes and difficulties and you try to make a stand for Christ, you're a Christian, but you're alone, what happens when pressure comes? It just breaks into a million pieces, right? <clears throat> ah, but what happens, man, this is a huge package. Probably should practice this. What happens if, it's not that big of a church, it's not a huge church, we'll leave some of that there. But it's a, it's a, it's a reasonable sized church. And, and what happens if pressure comes, I need a, I need a volunteer. I need a volunteer, okay, Connor? So, Connor's pretty strong, he really is. And so, within reason, we're gonna, you're gonna, don't ruin your dad's illustration. You're, you're, you're gonna put pressure, uh, you're the devil, no, I'm just kidding. Your, your, your trials and suffering and whatever comes into people's lives, what happens now if you push down on it? Push down pretty hard. The table's about to break. Okay, thank you, that's good. Yes. Thanks for playing along. He just pushed down with everything he had. Is your hand okay? Yeah, that's what you get, Satan. Uh, pushing down on the church of God like that. Um, so, so you notice that it all, it all uh, you know, didn't really break. And I will tell you that also, um, if, if it was going to break, which ones would break first? The ones on the outside. The ones in the middle tend to, to make it. So, here's the deal. Seasons of suffering and difficulty have an end for the believer. You know, I'm not, this, the main point isn't just that we're better together. That's an easy point to make, but let's take it another step. Seasons of suffering and difficulty have an end for the believer. At the worst, the end uh, as we enter heaven. Isn't kind of isn't kind of weird to say the worst is is heaven? We really have it pretty good, don't we? But you know what I mean. And assuming that it is not suffering that leads to death, your season of suffering has an end, even during your time on earth. Suffering is for a season. Generally, you get through stuff, and you get to the other side of it. And here's the point: if you made it through, in the center of a group of people, like the spaghetti in the middle and they helped you bend but not break until it was over. There's just a powerful kind of joy in that kind of fellowship. Additionally, this is a joy that promises hope for whatever comes next. This is a joy that means you know from experience that you are not alone. It's a powerful joy that comes through the fellowship of common suffering we go through it together. Let's see what the book of Philippians says about this. From verse 29 of chapter 1, <clears throat> Paul writes, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for Him. We are in this fight together. You've seen me suffer for Him in the past, and you know that I'm still in the midst of this great struggle. I love what Paul says to these relatively new Christians in the Philippian church, his church plant. He says, hey, we are in this fight together. He acknowledges that the Christian life in this world requires a lot of fight, but he says we're in that fight together. 
Paul mentions the privilege of suffering for Jesus. This is not a concept we're very familiar with in the American church of the 21st century. We tend to skim over these passages when we read them in our Bibles. But early Christians understood this concept very well and they didn't know to expect anything else. It's part of why they were better at sticking together. They assumed that since Jesus suffered, so would they. They had just seen it. They expected it. The hope and joy found in Christianity for them was not the promise of worldly blessings, but the promise of a new strength in handling the inevitable inevitable pains of life together in community, like a team or a family. They didn't just go to church. They were the church. And part of the reason is that they needed each other to get through. They remembered that Jesus himself said, look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Anybody? Yeah. Sheep among wolves. Be as wary as snakes and harmless as doves, but beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and beaten in the synagogues, and you must stand trial before governors and kings because you're my followers. This will be your opportunity to tell them about me. Yes, to witness to the world. When you're arrested, don't worry about what to say in your defense because you'll be given the right words at the right time. For it won't be you doing the talking. It'll be the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death. Fathers will betray their own children. And children will rise against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because of your allegiance to me. But those who endure to the end will be saved. I remember when I was growing up, this all sounded so foreign to me. And I was so thankful that nothing like this could ever be the case in my country. But as you know, these verses sound less and less like ancient history and more and more like what is coming. And some of it's already here. I pray that God might turn the tide of our culture, but even now we would all experience more suffering for our faith if we would but open up our mouths and say more than we're saying about what we believe. The early church suffered for their faith, and they endured that suffering together. Nothing brings people together in fellowship like common suffering. Does anyone else remember on September 11th, 2001, when congressmen from both sides of the aisle spontaneously gathered on the steps of the Capitol building and sang, God bless America, which is a prayer together. Anybody remember it? Anybody else? Come on, some of us. Oh man, I'm old. Why are only the old people raise their hands? What does that tell me? Sorry, old people, you're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm including myself with you, so I can't be in too much trouble, right? Well, we remember it. We remember it. It was powerful. It was awesome. <clears throat> I don't know for sure, but I would bet that since the bombings on Easter, The Christians in Sri Lanka have come together at this point um, and experienced a powerful kind of fellowship. Their churches may be smaller right now, maybe not even meeting in the buildings, but they have fellowship. And they experience a certain kind of joy through that kind of fellowship. The fact is that when times are hard enough, people of faith in Christ, the true church will draw together in unity. Conversely, when times are too easy, we focus on our own petty divisions and fly apart. 
that applies on a larger scale to the church on, as a whole, but also on a smaller scale to any individual local church. Suffering actually brings us together into a whole other level of fellowship, which can actually wind up bringing joy into our lives. How could Moses lead the entire nation of Israel out of Egypt? Have you ever thought about that? Probably two or three million people, historians estimate. That's like every single man, woman, and child in the greater Portland area, as if we all just grabbed our stuff, left our homes, and started following after a guy into, a guy into eastern Washington. You know, the desert. <clears throat> How that many just leave their stuff, go? One unit, they just marched off together. Apparently they had come together because of the suffering and oppression of slavery. They moved out together as one people because they had shared in a common suffering. But how long after they experienced relief, having taken the spoils of Egypt with them, before they began to lose the fellowship they apparently enjoyed in captivity? Not long. You might say also, though, that when more suffering came in the desert, there was division in the family of God. That is true too. Suffering can bring division. But after those who were not true children of faith were removed, like dross skimmed from silver in the crucible, those who were left experienced a unity of fellowship, which again brought joy. The same thing can happen in a church today on a local level and a global level, revival will happen partially through the falling away of those who are not truly of us. It's actually one of the good things that comes out of persecution. So bringing it back to you personally, how do you actually and for real discover joy through the fellowship of common suffering? Well, it starts when you show empathy for others who are suffering in your church family. That's actually where this kind of fellowship starts. Not so much when people come to you or in thinking they should have done so better than they did, but rather when you go to them. And sympathy is okay, but empathy is even better. The difference is that empathy means you've been there. You've experienced that kind of suffering, and you, you go to them and you empathize, do so, and you will begin to experience a certain kind of fellowship which leads to a certain a special kind of joy. The Bible says, all praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source of every mercy and the God who comforts us. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When others are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. You can be sure that the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. When's the last time you put an arm around a fellow believer, fellow church member, and said, I know you're going through some stuff. I just want to let you know I care. If you know them well enough, you can ask them out to lunch or over for prayer or just keep checking on them one way or another. If you've been through something similar and you're at least a little bit on the other side of it, then you can comfort them with the comfort you have received. Now, maybe some of you are thinking you just don't even know anybody in this church well enough to do any of this. Remember what I said about share groups? 
coming soon. That's why you'll want to be in one. Sharing like this will be the main point of those groups, but we do already have quite a few other opportunities for fellowship. Our men's and women's ministries, for example. Being here most Sundays instead of just every once in a while will help. Serving somewhere will spark a few relationships as every place of service means you're serving on a team. Connecting with me and others, even through online means, can help a little. Make plans to attend our barbecue at Abrams Park. It's going to be like nuclear fellowship, fellowship on steroids. You can't miss that. July 14th, our baptism barbecue at Abrams Park, Sunday evening, afternoon. The things you can do to start connecting, but only you can do those things. Let me add that sharing at the level of each other's suffering is not automatic, even if you do start connecting in some ways. It takes having the guts to really get involved in people's lives and letting them get involved in yours. Ministry is messy. Vulnerability and trust will be required, and sometimes we will let each other down, but we must make our best effort and learn to forgive and be forgiven when we fail. The Bible says, share each other's troubles and problems, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ referred to in this verse? Love your neighbor as yourself, and that's a challenge. I never said these secrets to real joy would, would be easy, did I? <clears throat> no, when the church gets real, it gets real messy. But real joy is waiting for us in the mess. And here's the thing. You probably don't know how much you need this joy, the joy of the Lord. You know? You're probably trying to fill that hole with a lot of other things. What if you don't need drugs or whatever else you're doing to try to feel better? I'm not trying to be your doctor. I'm just saying, what if? What if what you really need is the joy of the Lord? What if you applied yourself to the very things that allowed Paul to have joy from a dungeon after being beaten half to death and everything else he'd been through? What if suffering became a catalyst for joy in your life because of the fellowship you experience with others through that common area of suffering? And let me also point out that although suffering is a part of the Christian life on this earth, there are also times of great blessing. You know, don't feel guilty when you're in time of blessing. I, I struggle with that. There's a cycle to blessing and suffering in our lives. And sometimes <clears throat> those seem as regular as the seasons, but a planting of suffering always brings a harvest of blessing if you surrender to the work of God in your life. As the psalmist wrote, the Lord will do great things for me and I will be filled with joy. Now you might, some preacher might just stop right there and be like, everything's gonna be great. But it does go on. I will sow in tears. Then I will reap with songs of joy. If I go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, I will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with me. A harvest of good things. When you're there for someone else in their suffering, you also get to be there with them in their celebrations. There's a lot of joy in that. Now, let's talk about the third facet of fellowship that Paul addresses in his letter. In the church, joy is unleashed <clears throat> through the fellowship of conflict resolution. Joy is unleashed through the fellowship of conflict resolution. I have 
a couple boxes of tissue here. It's not because I planned on getting emotional today. You never know, but <clears throat> there's something magical, almost joyful about a box of tissues in the, in the connectivity. And ripping it in half is not the plan. The connectivity, it's like they're holding hands. <laughs> you pull on one, mess with one, another one comes out. That's a beautiful thing. Just gives me a little bit of joy, just a little bit of joy in there, the way that works. It works right. Okay, but how many of us have experienced, this is like a church that's connected. This is a church where sharing happens, where fellowship happens. But how many of you have ever experienced a box of tissues that didn't work right? <laughs> or a church that didn't work right? Where people weren't holding hands and you went to get a tissue and you pulled it out and nothing. And there's, I don't know what the opposite of joy is on that, but it happens. And so then you're needing another one and by the time you get dug in there and get it out, it's probably too late, right? You, buy, you just forget it. <laughs> Forgot about the mic. You wouldn't do that, right, Connor? <laughs> you know, it's just, it, 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 one works, one's connected. Fellowship, things are connected, one isn't. I just have to do this one more time, just feel a little joy. Oh, such a joy. All right, keeping the paper mills in business. That's good. All right, so after you've experienced the box, that doesn't work right because the individual tissues are in conflict rather than connected. Because we all have those experiences. We can find joy in it when it does work right in the church. <clears throat> Chicago, the 80s band, was right. Sometimes you don't know what you got until it's gone and you find out just a little too late. Okay, don't please, don't start singing the rest of it. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you've ever experienced it work right, it can be a wonderful, joyful thing. But listen, when fellowship is lost through conflict, the good side of that, if you can resolve the conflict, You've learned something. There is actually, this is where I'm getting going with this, a special kind of joy that comes when a conflict ends in peace. When it's not been working right and you can get it working right. This is one of the most difficult kinds of joy to discover, but it's worth the effort. Clearly, the church at Philippi had a lot of things going right. You know, one could make the case that that Paul had a, if, if Paul had a favorite church, it was the one in Philippi. And folks, Paul was not easy to please. Yet even in this relatively healthy church, there was a need for conflict resolution. In fact, there is no church anywhere without conflict and the need to resolve it. Why? Because churches are made up of people. Toward the end of the joy book of the Bible, Paul reluctantly addresses a conflict between two women, we're in chapter four, verse two, and he says, and now I want to plead with those two women, Euodia and Suntuke, please 
because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true teammate, probably reference to the pastor there this time, to help these women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. Notice the concept of fellowship in these words again, teammates, teamwork, working hard together going on, and they worked with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord, I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. In any organization of human beings, without constant conflict resolution, there will be no real fellowship. Unresolved conflict leads to bitterness, gossip, mistrust and the absolute death of fellowship. Paul understood that unresolved conflict is like a cancer that can spread throughout a church and kill that church's fellowship, thereby suppressing the joy that should be an obvious attribute of any believer in, in any church. Now, <coughs> excuse me, now I'm not going to spend a lot of time on <clears throat> the how-to of conflict resolution today, but I will touch on it briefly. The most often repeated, repeated and obvious conflict resolution principle we see in Scripture is also the one we follow the least. What's that principle? Well, as an example, <clears throat> the, um, the principle was Jesus, this principle was Jesus' main point in Matthew 18, the idea that we must always go straight to the person with whom conflict exists and not to anyone else. Nine times out of ten, we simply do not do that. It's the number one reason we stink at this. If we go to the person at all, it is usually after we have complained about them to others, after we've asked for sympathy from others, after we have requested prayer about it from others, etc. And the point, uh, at that point, the problem is already bigger than it was before. Paul's instruction to these two ladies was pretty simple, wasn't it? He just said, settle your disagreement. Boom. I love that. And he told the other person, presumably the pastor, to help them get it done. But notice how simple this is. Paul doesn't get compli give complicated instructions. He says, get it straight, ladies, because you belong to the Lord. And then he gives them some perspective and even more motivation by saying, remember, the Lord is coming soon. Oh, if we only really believed that one thing. Would we fight so easily? But there's another level to this idea of conflict resolution that I want to get to as I'm getting near the end here. It's not simply that we need to solve our conflicts, but also that we need to mature in our understanding of fellowship. Hear this, fellowship does not mean an absence of conflict. I would say to you that true fellowship fellowship that goes deeper than potlucks and, and fellowship halls will always include conflict of the most difficult kind. Look no further than your marriage. When you get closer to people, conflict occurs, period. The absolute fact is that most of us experience our worst conflicts with our spouses. It's probably the person we love and care about the most, more than anyone else on the planet. That should tell us that with great fellowship comes great conflict. And I think that's true. Conversely, a few marriages are so careful to avoid conflict that they just sort of coexist. Don't have a whole lot of a relationship, not a lot of fellowship. There's a few of those. There needs to be an understanding that in marriage as well as in the church, true fellowship is worth going through the inevitable conflict 
that comes when things get real. I want you to realize something very powerful today, and here it is. There can actually be a more meaningful fellowship gained on the other side of conflict resolution. We constantly set our sights too low as Christians. Understand this, if you make the ultimate effort in restoring fellowship that is broken by conflict, by the way, who else did that? Jesus. If you do that, that fellowship can wind up stronger than it was before. Now, it's not true if you don't really resolve things. You know, it's just hanging there. Not be true without resolution. And believe me, I know, sometimes you just can't get it resolved. You know, the Bible says be at peace if it's, whenever it's possible, be at peace with others. Um, you know, because of the other person. Sometimes you just have to remove yourself from a situation. There are those times. That's the truth. But listen, fellow believer, don't give up too easily. Because, you, I mean, that's the kind of thing's not supposed to happen in the church or something. You know, that's what I'm saying. Because if you make every effort and do the right thing and it works and you really resolve the conflict, if you continue to work at it to the end with tenacity and sincerity, practicing true forgiveness, reconciliation until, you know, all the wounds are truly placed into the process of healing and you're no longer trying to convince everyone that you were wronged more than the other person and, and everything has dropped, then you can actually wind up with a stronger relationship in the end. The idea that the best fellowship in the church or elsewhere is void of conflict is utopian and has no basis in reality. Instead, the best fellowship is found on the other side of conflict. Most people sadly never learn this because they give up too easily. That seems to be especially true when it comes to church fellowship because on our, in our culture, people simply move on down the road to a different church, right? I mean, if we were in China or somewhere, we might not have that option, but here we have options. And so people just move down the road or simply stop going to church at all. Think about the way this typically happens in a modern church. I don't like something the pastor said or did. Uh, I'll take my ball and go home. I don't like something someone said in my small group, uh, so I'm just going to join another small group or another church. One of the worst problems in the American church today is unresolved conflict. And we take it with us, by the way. Now, many avoid conflict when it's needed, not speaking the truth in love, and then there are always those few who are conflict-causing machines, running off people that that you, you, you can't win. There are those, let's just be honest. And they'll run people off, left and right. Pastors must deal with those people. Pastors, I have a role from the Bible. And I commit to you now that we will. <clears throat> Titus 3.10 and other passages give pastors a mandate to warn divisive people and remove them from the fellowship if they continually cause division. Really? Yes, really. It's one of my roles according to the New Testament. I cannot sit by when toxic people are destroying our fellowship. I'll go to the mat to protect the unity of this church. There's absolutely a time when someone does need to find another place to be. Titus 3.10. Instructions to a pastor of a church, by the way. There's a few, couple of you in here who needed a pastor like that recently. A couple families. That was the problem. Didn't have that. In the modern church... I'm afraid we've been guilty of avoiding healthy conflict and tolerating unhealthy conflict. 
Why is this such a problem? Because if that's the way we function, our fellowship will be systematically and cyclically destroyed. Even those who continue to attend the church will do so as independent people rather than vulnerably engaging in the kind of fellowship that can lead to joy. And isn't this, this what has happened in many of our churches? Has church not become a place to guardedly attend occasionally for most? I really do love some of the larger churches in Vancouver. I know the pastors and the two I'm thinking of right now are amazing men. Their churches are amazing churches. I admire them. I look up to them. But I also think they would admit that this is a problem. I have nothing against big churches, and who knows how big we'll get. Only God knows. But one reason most big churches keep getting bigger and smaller churches keep dying off is that most people aren't looking for fellowship at all. Many people would rather just attend church and stay as independent as possible. We've already lost several families for that exact reason. And that's what they're telling me. They don't know that's what they're telling me, but that's exactly what they're telling me. Am I stepping on any toes? If so, you're missing out. I'm just telling you, you're missing out on discovering real joy, the joy of the Lord through this type of fellowship. Smaller churches, by the way, often have a worse problem. A worse problem than being the, the, the larger churches, the problem would be that people go there because they know they won't have to connect. Smaller churches have a, a, a worse problem sometimes. Smaller churches tend to become toxic with conflict. Why? Because of a few poisonous people who are allowed to go on operating without repentance. Usually they outlast pastors, too, I mean, if you've noticed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Smaller churches are often rife with unhealthy conflict. I don't want to freak anyone out, but I'm telling you once more that you can count on me to guard against that as the pastor, the shepherd of this church. It's not fun, I can tell you. It's part of my job. And just in case you think I'm just speaking rhetorically, I've already had to do it. So is this what we're left with in terms of churches and choices in churches? Are we left with big churches where everyone functions independently or small churches where toxic people can't be stopped? If so, do you think that could be part of why so many people who claim to be followers of Jesus don't go to church anymore? Absolutely. All the way around, I'm afraid. What this all boils down to is this. Churches and Christians today have decided that real fellowship just isn't worth the efforts. And you see, one of the things we miss out on is joy. We're stopping at the 25th mile. It's the second part of our big picture vision again. Second big part, loving God. Can you see it? Loving each other, loving everyone. Loving each other is a whole part of our vision. That's one third of it. We have to learn how to love each other. I'm not talking about puppy love. Infatuation, I'm talking about the enduring love of Christ involves a biblical commitment to each other over a long period of time. Finding true fellowship in the church today is very difficult. It's long-term, sometimes a complicated process. It's not a destination, but a journey. Only be completely fulfilled in heaven, but church family, there is a joy in the journey. Are you on the journey to 
discover true fellowship with other believers. I encourage you to work for it and pray for it and don't give up on it because fellowship is truly one of the secrets to discovering real joy in your life. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.